Good morning and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Before the press went wild with the Hiltons, namely Paris, it had a field day with another hotel family. A new book explores the Astor family's history. It's called When the Astors Owned New York, Blue Bloods and Grand Hotels in a Gilded Age. I'm joined this morning by the book's author, Justin Kaplan. Justin, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. You won a Pulitzer Prize for your book, Mr. Clemens and Mark Twain. You've also written about Walt Whitman. Why did you decide to focus your attention on the Astors? First of all, I'm absolutely fascinated by New York City. I was born here. I was brought up here. My wife and I are among the few people who were actually born on this island and and brought up here. So so New York has always been at the very center of my attention, even though we live in, in Cambridge. And For example, the Mark Twain career starts in New York in, in certain respects, and Whitman was, the, after all, the poet of New York, and the muckraker Lincoln Steffens, whom I wrote about, began his career as a newspaper editor in the city. And um, it just goes on and on. And Annie and I, my wife and I recently published uh, a memoir called Back Then, which is a r- memoir of growing up in New York City in the 1950s. So I, maybe it's time for me to broaden out a little bit. Most people are familiar with the Astors for two reasons. Number one, the Waldorf Astoria yes. in Manhattan, which is not the original hotel, and we'll talk about that. Yes. And the fact that John Jacob Astor IV died on the Titanic. Yes. But clearly there is a lot more to this family. Uh, my book focuses on two grandchildren, grandsons of uh, the old skinflint John Jacob Astor and these two great-grandsons who were cousins. Uh, there's a rivalry, there's a resentment, and so on. That was the uh, the central human story here. And also, they're involved with the story of the emergence of the luxury hotel as a very special kind of American institution, something that Henry James described as something new under the sun. A lot of internal conflict with this family. It started, though, with the third generation of Astors. The third generation, let's say, was a transitional generation. They were just on the... Uh, I, I've never known exactly what the cusp was, <laughs> but <laughs> just at the turning point of being very rich to beginning to uh, uh, fancying themselves blue bloods. And uh, blue bloods are a very select breed, too. And as you said, that family conflict transferred on to William Waldorf Astor and John Jacob Astor IV. The two cousins, yes. Now, they lived side by side in Manhattan in townhouses. Yes. And they didn't like each other very much. No, their their parents occupied uh, adjacent brownstones on the Fifth Avenue block between 33rd and 34th Street. And there's a 16-year difference in age between these two cousins, but uh, for other reasons, they had very little to do with each other. They were totally different people. They were, they were altogether different. One of them, uh, John Jacob Astor the Fourth, is a rather strange, gawky, eccentric individual, sometimes rather silly, known to, to behind his breast, behind his back, and even to his face as Jack Astor, also known as Jackass. Whereas his cousin, William Waldorf Astor, was of an entirely different breed. He was very, very serious and very an intellectual and highly cultivated, uh, uh, terrific reader, a, a collector of 
painting and sculpture and manuscripts and so on and so forth, and also obsessed with family history. Uh, so obsessed with family history that uh, he spent a good deal of time and money having uh, some genealogists in London track down the family origins because he could not quite live with the fact that the founder of the Astor Fortune, John Jacob Astor, uh, began, it was, was the son of a butcher in Baden in Germany and began as a sort of rabbit skinner and, and fur trader before he became uh, a real estate magnate. And so for William Waldorf Astor, there was an absolute compulsive need to get over this rabbit skitter background. And so he paid a fair amount of money to have uh, some genealogists stitch up a family history that went all the way back to, that supposedly went all the way back to a noble Spaniard who died at the siege of Jerusalem in the year 1100 or something like that. Of course, it was all moonshine, but William Waldorf Astor preferred to believe it and even derived from this phony genealogy uh, the justification for having a coat of arms with a bird or something like that. Not many people bought that, though. No, but he did. He did. And, and, and uh, in, in a way, he... Uh, his mature life was lived out in, let's say, adapting this belief. That is, he, he renounced his American citizenship. He moved to England. He became a subject of Queen Victoria. He bought uh, enormous estates in England, such as Cliveden. And towards the end of his life, he, no, no, towards the, let's say, last third, he bought a castle in Kent or somewhere like that, which he completely redid out of cost of an estimated couple of million dollars uh, and equipped with a moat, uh, a drawbridge, and all the accoutrements of a medieval castle, which he intended to live in by himself while uh, spending a good deal of money building a sort of Tudor village where his guests and his staff could live. He, he lived a life of very expensive fantasy, and eventually his his benefactions to the uh, British government bought him uh, a peerage. He became Viscount Astor of, of Hever Castle, which, and he really loved it. And his son hated it. His son hated it because the son had entered politics and had been a member of the uh, House of Commons and would have to renounce his seat in the House of Commons once the title of Viscount descended to him. And it was a very b bitter issue between father and son. The father couldn't believe that anyone could be that insensitive to the ambition of his life. What was William's main beef with America? Well, first of all, I, I think he wasn't temperamentally equipped to live in, a, in the scrambling uh, society of, of the Gilded Age. He made the mistake of running for public office and was elected to... Uh, uh, the state legislature, but it, it was uh, perfectly obvious that he wasn't cut out for for political work. He, he when he would canvass for votes, uh, it was noticed that he he shook hands with people but kept his glove on. That he spent very little time after you know buying everyone a round of drinks and then immediately and was wearing a silk hat and a beautiful glossy overcoat, and as soon as his session was over, he disappeared into his carriage drawn by matching horses. That's not the kind of 
let's say, presentation of self that's likely to make a man loved enough to be elected to anything. So he left and blamed the press for the hard time that he had and began hating the press and who uh, collecting he collected clippings uh, which made fun of him as part of his beef about America. How would you describe the relationship between the media and the Astors? It comes down to the issue of money. And uh, it's it's perfectly noticeable that during the so-called Gilded Age that is extended during the 1870s and 80s, the American public was absolutely fascinated, as they still are, by money and by society. Can you imagine... For example, the New York Times of today running a page one article about so-and-so's dinner or so-and-so's engagement and so on. Society was big news and and always money was even bigger news. And well, I once found in a, a notebook of Mark Twain what I thought was an absolutely devastating demonstration. He said, the American public is so in love with money that think of the following page one banner headline in a newspaper, Rich Lady Falls Downstairs, Not Hurt. And he said, that's news, you see, for the public that it was news. Unlike William, John Jacob Astor IV was very much an American. Yes. Well, an American in in citizenship and residence, but not, not let's say, a, a Democrat in the, in the classic sense of it. He was very snobbish. And extremely rich. It's it's a little hard to figure out just how rich these two birds were. Let's say that they had an estimate. Each had an estimated fortune of, let's say, between a hundred million and a hundred and fifty million. And what you have to do if you're going to try to get some idea of what that is in contemporary buying power, you might have to use a factor of fifteen or sixteen to. So that 150 million would turn out to be, I don't know, 1.2 billion or something like that. The point about how rich people were, because uh, you also have to relate it to, let's say, what we'd now call quality of life. For example, the average delivery boy on a bicycle with an iPod or or a, a Sony Walkman has more access to good music or any kind of music, even gangster rap, than Frederick the Great had or or any or the Esterhazys or anyone like that. So it's hard to say that you, it, you can't do a literal rendering of so many million times 16. It doesn't make any sense. Prior to the Astors, the private lives of the elite in New York were just that, private. But following the Astors and the building of their hotels, these lives became very public. Even before then, I mean, when young John Jacob Astor IV came back from a grand tour, his mother introduced him to society at a, um, as if he were a debutant, at a gala dinner and reception for, I don't know, five or six hundred people. And so these poor Astors were always in the public eye, no matter what they did, and you know, even a tiny little slip-up would generate inches and inches of newspaper copy. But I guess what the Astors did was they helped to put the private lives of other elite folks in New York on display through their hotels. I mean, society people. Well, yes, the Astors. John Jacob Astor the fourth mother aspired to be 
the queen of, of American society and very, very well succeeded, I think. She wanted to be known as the Mrs. Astor, not uh, without any need for a first name. Uh, she was covered with diamonds and pearls. Her chamberlain, someone who worked for her, described her as a walking chandelier. She was so burdened with, with rocks of a very heavy sort. Her nephew, William, really didn't like that. He wanted his wife to be the social queen of that, New York. That was part of, part of the bitterness was that William uh, wanted his wife to be the Mrs. Astor and uh, and the other Mrs. Astor held firm, but they, they, they did have, a, uh, let's say, a public battle, which is almost embarrassing to think that people would pay that much attention to anything. That's stupid. But I, I claim that, you know, they, they made it into a historic feud. Now, these two cousins, William and John Jacob, are responsible for the Waldorf Astoria, but didn't do it together. They did no. it separately, and it became one. Well, it became one. This is part of the intertwined stories of my book has to do with the development of the luxury hotel as a very specifically and very gaudy American institution. And so William Waldorf built on. All right, you have to go back to the same block on Fifth Avenue between thirty thirty third and thirty fourth Street. That's where the the parents of these two Astor cousins occupied adjacent brownstone mansions. Now, surely, certainly out of peak, uh, William Waldorf Astor tore down his parents' house. You might think of You don't have to get Oedipal to realize that was a, a gesture, let's say, loaded with symbolism. Well, he tears down his parents' mansion and in its place puts up a towering hotel which not only is a new institution in uh, New York life, but casts a shadow on the mansion next door, so much of a shadow that uh, Mrs. Astor, as she preferred to be called, had to move away and build a palace somewhere uptown. And eventually, John Jacob got even. First, he wanted got to a, a, put a horse stable there. Yeah, that's way, I'm really going to get even with, with my cousin. If he has this fancy hotel, I'm going to put a stable next door and see how... See how the customer is like that one. But he realized that was a self-destructive and, let's say, a counterproductive move and built a, connect, a, a hotel adjacent to it, which was actually connected by corridors, but corridors that could be sealed off in the event the uh, two cousins were hated each other too much even to cooperate that much. And each were building other hotels as well. Once the Waldorf Astoria was established as the most luxurious hotel in New York, the, each of the two cousins independently began building other hotels, some of which are still around. For example, the, the St. Regis is, is, is very, very glitzy. And uh, there was a piece in the, in the Times about the Hotel Knickerbocker, which was owned and built by John Jacob Astor IV, which has now been bought by the royal family of Dubai, and they're going to turn it back into a, a luxury hotel. But it, it, the, the whole business of luxury hotels really has to be put in the context of what hotels were like during the middle 19th century. They were, they were places where you stayed, whereas once the luxury hotel uh, emerged... 
they became destinations in themselves. It was, it was an adventure. It was an experience. It wasn't just a place to lie down for the night or anything like that. I was interested to learn in your book that the manager of the Waldorf Astoria is the one who first introduced velvet ropes. We see velvet ropes all the time outside exclusive events. Well, do you think, think that, that was really ingenious? I mean, think of the function of, of the velvet rope, which is really a very, very simple object. It's a velvet, ro- velvet rope between two posts, and yet it is, again, loaded, absolutely loaded with symbolism. It says, stay out. The fact that it's velvet uh, suggests uh, untold luxury inside, and it immediately says to people, you are privileged to enter or you are not privileged to enter. And don't don't make any mistake of it. The most talked about event at the Waldorf Astoria was the Bradley Martin Ball back in 1897. Tell us about that event. There's a woman named Cornelia Bradley Martin who was determined to... Uh, give the most spectacular entertainment since the Vanderbilts, so to go beyond the Vanderbilts. This was during a, the 1890s, a, a time of uh, unemployment, depression, bread lines, social unrest, and so on. But she went ahead with this gaudy idea, I suppose at the back of her mind, justifying it by uh, what we now call the trickle-down theory, that if I spend enough money on fancy stuff, it's going to give employment to people who have to make this stuff, and therefore I'm a beneficiary of the public. I'm not just a, um, an irresponsible spendthrift. Anyhow, she gave this gaudy ball for five or 600 people, which people came dressed as as Mary Antoinette and uh, Louis the Fourteenth and Louis the Fifteenth, and a, a woman even came dressed as, as Pocahontas in... in a gown made of made by American Indians of feathers. Uh, it was not altogether. Uh, it was not all that happy an event. Finally, uh, it sort of wore out at three or four in the morning, and uh, you know after the ball was over, people wondered what was it all about. What were the moral issues that were stirred up by it? Well, Cornelia Bradley Martin made enough of an impression on on the public so that. Uh, their her real estate taxes were doubled, and she was in in effect forced into exile. She packed up her furniture and gave one last uh, gala dinner or gala luncheon at the Waldorf Astoria and moved away to England, never to be heard from after that. But she had long before then uh, acquired a reputation as the most spendthrift American who would ever come over. You mentioned the Vanderbilts. Why did the Astors look down on the Vanderbilts? All right, this is this has to do with the pecking order of these people in, let's say, what's called high society. The the Astors looked back, looked down on the Vanderbilts because the Vanderbilt money was more recent than the Astor money. The Astors could look back to uh, John Jacob Astor, who died in uh, 1848, whereas the Vanderbilts still had kicking Commodore Vanderbilt, who who began as a sort of ferry operator and was very hard-fisted and unpleasant and not quite old money. And one of the peculiar things about this relationship of 
money in society is that in this country, uh, money ages much more quickly than it does in Europe. That is, in Europe, they would still be known as nouveau riche or nouveau très riche, but in, in America, uh, there were no such invidious distinctions. What did that first John Jacob Astor see in New York that he thought would really take off? He started buying up land, didn't he, and expected he, he, to he, increase... He said that, that if, he had his, if he had his life to live all over again, he would buy up every every foot or every inch of real estate in Manhattan. No, he, he knew that uh, he knew that New York was the coming thing. And, you know, there's a recent book published about a year or two ago about the original Dutch settlement of New York, of Manhattan. It's a book called The Island at the Center of the World. And John Jacob Astor realized this was the island at the center of the world, or as some of us think, the island at the center of the universe even. And we should point out that he was the one to open the first Astor Hotel in New York. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, the old man who died in 1848, as one of his last opulent gestures, put up the most luxurious hotel of its kind on Broadway in New York City. And so I guess the Astors had... Uh, innkeeping or hotel building in, the, in their in their jeans. As the Astors were building these luxurious hotels in New York, other magnificent hotels were going up around the nation, and you talk about them in your book as well. Ah, uh, well, it, it's a, it, these buildings are a lot of a lot, institutions, rather, are a lot of fun to read about and talk about. There was um, uh, what is the Palmer House in Chicago which uh, Rudyard Kipling described as a sort of a gilded and mirrored rabbit warren. There were grand hotels in San Francisco, in uh, in Denver, in Palm Beach, and so on. It, it seemed that as soon as a person became a multimillionaire, the impulse was to build hotels which would memorialize them. And by the way, since I use the word millionaire, one of the historic facts about uh, John Jacob Astor was that he was probably the first person to be identified as a millionaire at a time when the word millionaire itself was absolutely brand new in the language. And now a millionaire doesn't, doesn't carry much weight, does it? Many people today would be surprised that the Waldorf Astoria that we know is not the Waldorf Astoria that was built by the Astors. Well, it would be a sad mistake if they were if they were confused. Time passed by the, the original Waldorf Astoria. By 1929, it seemed a little out of date and a little fusty, and so they they tore it down, they demolished it, and it was replaced on that site by the Empire State Building. And the, the name Waldorf Astoria was simply bought for a dollar by the backers of this new hotel on Park Avenue. But the two hotels are really not to be confused. They're entirely different animals. Would you say the Hiltons are the Astors of today? You mean in social standing or in... And in the hotel industry? No, I don't think anyone quite had the social standing that the Astors had in New York in the 1880s and 1890s. I mean, these are very rich people any more than uh, you think of... Donald Trump is a leader of American society. He's not. He's just a very, very, very rich real estate promoter. 
as far as the family dynamics, what I found very striking is that after John Jacob Astor IV died in the Titanic, his cousin, who was the family spokesman, kept silent. Well, I think that that was my way of measuring the, the degree of resentment. I thought it was extraordinary. Presumably he gets the news, but doesn't say a word, but spends, the, spends that day in studying his manuscripts and his books. It's a very final way of saying I don't really care about my cousin. William also had his own sinking of sorts, though, at the end of his life. He had bought this magnificent estate called Cliveden and passed it to his his son as as, uh, he thought the most princely wedding gift ever made. And the, the son tried to keep up the house and entertained various people there. Among among them, uh, it was suggested people who were, this is during the 1930s, people were in favor of accommodating England to Hitler. It got a very, very bad rep. But you can't blame that on, on William Waldorf. That's, uh, it, it wasn't quite fair. What about the Astors today? Are there any descendants that are doing great things? Are you aware? If you're going to look at them genetically, I think uh, it was a, a, line, a bloodline that was singularly devoid of any kind of philanthropic impulse. But the really open-handed Astor these days is, is Brooke Astor, who's, not, who's an Astor by marriage and who inherited the, the fortune indirectly or through her son, or her husband, inherited a good deal of the Astor fortune and has been very generously giving it away. What surprised you most about your research into the Astor history? First of all, the, the the drama of the the founding of the Astor fortune. You may think of the old man, John Jacob Astor, as a predatory skinflint, but it was a man. He was a man of enormous imagination, and he claimed that that he could have made him. Of course, what he cared about was money, and just about exclusively. He claimed that he, if his plans had held for a three-quartered fur trade, he might have become the richest man that ever lived, but his great scheme, which involved shipping furs from Astoria on the Columbia River in the Northwest, shipping furs to China or Japan, trading them there for tea, shipping the tea to England, trading the, the tea for British manufacturers and selling the British manufacturers in New York and at each turn making an incredible profit on this traffic. But the, the great scheme was defeated by uh, bad luck and the War of 1812 and various treacheries on one side or another. In addition to the hotels here in New York City, the Astros owned other property, right? And weren't they considered slumlords? Uh, yes, the Astors, along with, for example, Trinity Church, were the largest single slumlords. They owned acres and acres of tenements with a uh, population density greater than that of Calcutta, and no one seemed to pay very much attention to this. And they were amazingly resistant to tenement reforms, architectural and layout reforms. They just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Just collect the rents and... And and don't sell the property was their principle. The romances of the Astors, 
that's something else that you also focus on in your book between John Jacob Astor IV and William. William had a love in Italy that he was not able to pursue, and John Jacob IV had a love that really came later. He had a first wife that he wasn't too pleased with. Did not last very long. He was was miserably married off shortly after he came back from his year abroad to a a woman who was a great beauty and who apparently despised him. But she did her dynastic duty by producing a son exactly nine months after their marriage, and after that seemed to have very little to do with her husband, John Jacob, with the exception of uh, drawing on him for money and huge amounts of money. He waited until his mom passed away in order to divorce, correct? Well, yes. Divorce was then a, a very considerable scandal, and I suppose he was afraid it would kill his aging, aging mother, who was already soft in the head, by the way, if he got involved in a messy divorce. But as soon as she kicked off, he got he got divorced. He was just waiting. And then William, who did have a good marriage, did have a love he, that he, he wasn't had, able to get. He had get. an okay marriage, an affectionate marriage. He had a somewhat, let's say, frustrated life because he claimed that he had been in love with some mysterious Italian beauty, but whom he was not allowed to marry, and so he carried her image in his bosom for the rest of his life. It's, it's a conventional and uh, sad story, really. Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, the Astors, what's next for you, Justin Kaplan? Uh, well, if you have any suggestions, I'd like to hear them. I, I'm really in between things. Well, for right now... You can check out When the Astors Owned New York, Blue Bloods, and Grand Hotels in a Gilded Age. Justin Kaplan, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. On next week's show, folk musician Elijah Walt joins us to talk about his new book, Riding with Strangers, A Hitchhiker's Journey. We'll see you then. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. The podcast of Cityscape gets support from WFUV's contributing members. Find out more at WFUV.org.